Hi everyone, welcome to Future Imagined, a brand new and exciting Foresight podcast powered by MGS Insights. I'm Joe Lapore, I head up Foresight for the North American market and I'm very excited to bring you today episode three where we explore the second shift of the five that we've identified as part of the transformed next normal, renewed purpose. Today, we're joined by four special guests, so you're very spoiled. They'll help us to explore the topic, both to get that expert opinion and unique perspective about what's happening in the regeneration revolution, as it's being called. What are some of those human behaviors that we're starting to see play out? How is that impacting culture? Things that we're seeing within repurpose and circularity, as well as how companies are reacting to this and what they're doing about it. The other thing that we're going to hear from is how and why young people are committed to this topic, and we're going to hear that from their very own mouths. Hi, my name is Dalila Finneran. I'm a recent college grad of DePaul University in Chicago, and happy to lend the voice to the entire Gen Z. I'm Yuri Vandenberg. I'm one of the founders of Insights Consulting. My passion in life is actually studying young generations, including Generation Z. And I've recently been involved with studying sustainability. I'm Ann Allenson, Global Program Manager for Packaging Sustainability for Mars Wrigley, and I'm located in Chicago. I'm Jessica Southerd, and I'm sort of Joe's equivalent, but at a Mars corporate level. So I lead our corporate foresight and innovation work globally. I think that we've come a really long way in this topic. When I think back to when I was a teenager growing up or in university and college, you had activists, which were sort of the tree huggers. You had really super serious eco organizations like Greenpeace. And then you had vegans who everybody made fun of. Today, young people are growing up in a completely different situation where, you know, they're buying secondhand clothes and then touting them to their friends. They're eating Hungry Jack's plant burgers. And every organization has a corporate social responsibility initiative around sustainability. So it's a really different world. And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because it feels like the climate crisis, as it's being called, is sort of the crisis for this generation and for the next decade. What we've seen is that 70% of global consumers say that they're responsible for the future of the environment. So it's something that people have really accepted and embraced. From Mars's standpoint, it feels like it's one of the biggest priorities that we have. It is one of our biggest crises Our board of directors have said that this is probably one of the biggest for their generation. But I think a long time ago, people didn't care as much. And I think this is becoming such a big issue everywhere that organizations have been growing, such as the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, trying to organize the world on solving such big problems. And so big companies are taking their steps to understand what their role is in this responsibility. And so we know that we need to play a factor in this and be part of the solution. So this is something that's critically important, something that we're investing in heavily to make sure that we have plans in place that get us to where we need. And it is really a top agenda topic all the time, even for the Mars family. What we've seen is that nearly eight in 10 global consumers are saying that we're headed towards an environmental disaster. So I think the other really striking thing, aside from what organizations are doing, is we're seeing so much action from people. Traditionally, we've seen a lot of inaction because, you know, people either think that it's doomsday and we've just gone too far. And then there's some people who have thought it's a little bit overstated. It's really not that bad. And now it feels like we've transitioned into what people are calling intuitive understanding of the issue. 
issue and a really broad acceptance. And that seems to be really leading into individual action and people actually taking steps in themselves to do something to help. Yuri, I'd love to know what some of those behaviors are that you're seeing. The first one would be we're avoiding or at least minimizing food waste. It is a growing concern. And I think because we spent more time at our homes, we became more aware of our own food consumption, but also expiry dates of products, which means we're more involved with stock and fridge management, using up our leftovers. Also to minimize the frequency of going shopping for groceries uh, with a benefit for uh, saving money as well. The second one would be minimizing packaging waste and recycling or also avoiding single-use plastics. Again, because of this increased in-home consumption, we became more aware of the piles of packaging and plastics that we're collecting. So consumers are more buying in bulk and are becoming more open for circular milkman refilling systems. Then a third one would be consuming less in general. Um, I think one of the consequences of the current crisis is that we are prioritizing our needs over our wants. Um, so we're thinking, what, what do we really need? So we need comfy clothes, we need an improved home and garden, but uh, we can also repair and, and mend our clothes instead of just throwing them away and, and replacing them. And a bit related to that is a fourth one. It's the DIY trend, do it yourself, uh, which is a combination of controlling our own carbon footprints, but also controlling the ingredients we're using, the uh, processing methods. So it's not only better for the planet, it's also better for us, for our own health. And it gives us a sense of control and achievement in these quite uncertain times. It gives us a relaxing, mindful activity. And then a the last one would be eating less meat and becoming more a flexitarian. Again, it's better for the planet, but it's also better for my own health. I'm embarrassed to say that Australia is the biggest country in terms of waste for food per capita, followed by the US, which is a little bit astounding considering we only have 24 million people here. But minimizing food waste is one of those that you've mentioned that feels like it's been growing over a very long period of time, people trying to be more self-sufficient and resourceful with what they have. Is that a part of what you were saying around people taking on some of these new rituals, new habits, flexing in their lifestyles to get that control back and have some impact as an individual? Yep, I think there's different drivers and one is certainly having that sense of control. I would say convenience is like the main enemy of sustainability for consumers. So convenience is always a driver as well. And what we see, for instance, is, is a growing number of apps that allow you to find a good deal near you where restaurants or butchers or bakeries have surplus foods. And you can go there and, and get a discount. So it's more affordable. It's better for your wallet. It's better for the butcher and for the restaurant as well. They don't have to throw away the food. And in the end, it's very convenient because it's located based and you can immediately see what good deals you can do in your neighborhood. Yeah, and it feels like there's some really fantastic innovation from companies that they've built an entire infrastructure where you can actually send them your clothes and then they fix them or you can send your old clothes and swap them for somebody else's. So it feels like that space is really growing and it's sort of linked into, Jess, what you and I have been talking about a little bit with the creativity that's starting to come through. What are some of the other ways that we're seeing that come to life with sustainability? To me, one of the bright spots of last year was the individual creativity and sort of innovation that took place within the house. 
I think you're seeing people sort of picking up some of those lost traditions. Gardening was a really, really big one. I know growing up, my grandmother, like it was just a given that you grew your own vegetables and you canned them for the winter. That was sort of just an absolute necessity. And I think you're seeing people embrace a lot of those behaviors and pick those back up. Not as much driven by necessity, but to your point, I think it's served as sort of a creative outlet. It's given people, quite frankly, something to do. And I think they've also realized how easy and enjoyable it can be in terms of embracing some of those non-technology entertainment means of spending your time. I'm super curious to know, Dalila, you know, as our resident Gen Z expert in the room, are any of these the types of habits that you've picked up or that you've seen your friends pick up? I see a trend that I've been picking up those habits since I was young. Gen Z especially, we were taught about sustainability and recycling from a really young age. And as we got older, we saw the news and we saw how our planet was being affected. And I was thinking, like, what power do we have as consumers, as people to change what's going on in the world? So I wanted to get educated. And I know a lot of other Gen Z's are really into educating themselves into what is going on and how we can help and how we can stop it. You know, I started to think about like what I can do as a consumer. So I like I don't eat any red meat because I know the meat industry really is affecting the world and I don't drink milk. So like I'm almost a vegetarian. I like thrifting clothes, which thrifting was seen kind of in a negative way, like for older generations. But with our generation, it's something cool and fun to do because it's cheap and it's eco-friendly. And, you know, new styles are being recycled all the time. So now it's like the early 2000s are back and everyone wants to dress like that. And of course, it's all left in, you know, the thrift stores. So it's like really interesting kind of how we recycle trends as well, throwing our own spin on it. I don't think we really have a choice but to be eco-conscious because this is where we're going to be in the next 40 years. I mean, a lot of the older generations are not going to be here anymore, so they won't have to deal with anything that we will. So I think we're putting in the work now to see a better future tomorrow. And Dalila, you touched on something really interesting there, which is you're now being taught this in schools from a young age, which is something quite new as well. From all of the data that we've seen, you know, we've seen 90% of Gen Z are worried about the environmental impact of the planet. The statistics that millennials were more worried than their previous generations, and now Gen Zs have sort of gone to the the 90%. I mean, you can't get any more worried than that. How much of that is the real sort of education that you've had in school and the knowledge that you're building yourself around what's happening versus how much are you impacted by the need to be environmentally conscious from what your friends are doing and what society expects you to be as a Gen Z? Well, I feel like from a young age, like this is ingrained in my brain, reduce, reuse and recycle. Like we would watch cartoons about it, you know, something that like, it was kind of fun. And yeah, I'll recycle, I'll turn the lights off, I'll use water for 10 seconds when I brush my teeth. But I feel like as we've gotten older, and as technology's gotten better, we have so much knowledge at our like fingertips. So we really hold each other accountable. Like, I would use this as an example. Uh, I saw a video on TikTok of a small business packaging items and somebody commented and said, 
is the packaging sustainable? Is it recyclable? People, we're asking those questions. Like as consumers, we care. If we want to buy your product, we want to make sure that it's not going to hurt us in the end, even if it's in the small details, even if it's small things that we do every day. I feel like all of those things build up to create a bigger issue if we don't address them now. We really kind of judge each other if we aren't sustainable or aren't eco-friendly because we're like, hey, it's kind of easy to do this and it's going to help us in the end. Like, just do it, you know? It's not cool to not care anymore. We're not just blindly consuming things and, like, forgetting about it. Like, we're thinking about how this affects other people and how this affects us. It feels like something that you've been sort of raised into thinking. It's ingrained in everything that you do. And Yuri, I'm keen to see from all of the work that you've done on if you think that this is going to be a long-standing behavior for Gen Z, and do you think it will filter through to Gen Alpha? Yes, I do think it's a, it's a long-standing behavior. As was already mentioned, it's not only an increased education in schools, but also the other school called Netflix is also bringing documentaries. <laughs> uh, David Attenborough's Life on Our Planet, for instance, is really a testimony of how the planet is going in the wrong direction. And this type of content, you could say, is the content that this young generation is, is growing up with. And you mentioned Generation Alpha. I think what is interesting when we look at generations is always look at the parents as well. And I think one thing that is happening today is what we can call reverse socialization, which is actually means that Generation Z is educating their parents, Generation X parents, who suddenly also are becoming more vegetarians and vegans because their kids are actually educating them on the meat industry. And I recently saw this new campaign of Oatly, the, the plant-based dairy alternatives called the Help Dad campaign, in which I created a website giving all the uh, arguments for teens to convince their dads to also go plant-based instead of drinking dairy. So I think this young generation is not only better educated, they're also educating other generations and at first their parents. And that will evolve in other generations copying the behavior of the young generations. For a lot of people, it's not just a behavior, it's become sort of a way of life. I think another point that's really key, and you already hit on this earlier, is it's not just being sort of bottoms up embraced, but I think there's tons of innovation happening in terms of new business models, digital solutions. And so I think just the accessibility and ease of integrating simpler, better choices into your daily lives is also accelerating, which to me says that's kind of the sweet spot, right? People can yearn to make big changes in their lives, but if it's not convenient, if it's not accessible, if it's not affordable, that's sort of wishful thinking and you don't see that become mainstream. And I think a lot of these trends are now picking up speed and will become mainstream in the year ahead. Yeah. And I feel like that starting point for people where they are looking at changing their environment and what adds meaning into their environment. And then that is being seen by organizations as well as governments. I mean, we can see some really tremendous action when governments do take initiative and lead the charge. I mean, the plastic bag ban is a great example of that. I mean, without the consumer embracing those new behaviors, you can have as much innovation as you want to have by organizations and governments. What you really need is that individual action, which is what we're starting to see. 
What we've seen from consumers is a real demand for action and for change and this sort of growing impatience as well as skepticism around what action consumers you know, expect companies to be making today. And there's a myriad of things that we could be initiating and exploring. So Anne, I'm hoping that you can share with us how we prioritize what it is that we go after today and what are some of the things that we're taking action on. I think what's really important is that this is such a big, complex challenge that it's really a whole value chain of activities that need to happen. So we need to break it up from the role of the consumer to the role of the producer to the role of governments and NGOs and how we all play a part in solving this really big problem. In some instances, we don't have all the technologies available yet today, but we're working really hard across you know, universities, big partnerships with other companies and suppliers to find solutions. So in the meantime, you're right, we need to find short-term solutions. And some of those things can be proper labeling. So we've partnered with How to Recycle to make sure we're giving proper disposal instructions and we're starting to begin to implement that. And I think that you'll see that we're working on advocacy plans with governments and NGOs, trying to make sure we're setting the right metrics and goals and targets so that we are making progress and showing that. And then I think we are looking at longer term material changes. We want to investigate what might work for our products and what consumers want and what customers want. So we do see, like you said, Woolworths or Coles in Australia is making great strides. We're also hearing Walmart has goals. Tesco in the UK wants to uh, make sure we're not putting bad packaging out in the market in the future. So we have to work the whole value chain across that board. We've seen a lot of change in Europe because they implement EPR fees. These are extended producer fees that charge businesses to pay for the plastic they put in the market or pay for the packaging that they put in the market so that they can fund the collection of it. So it's like funding our recycling system here in the United States is an option. And I think when you see all these things come together, you're going to see more progress. We have joined the U.S. Plastic Pact recently. There's a new Canadian Plastic Pact And there's work streams in each of these packs that are trying to make progress on all those areas. What's the legislation that you need? What's the recycling infrastructure that you need to invest in? What's the most optimal? And then what are the other material development or engaging consumers are really bringing them into learning what works? I think I just want to add that I love what you guys are saying because we do need to innovate too. There are new behaviors and I love the crowdsourcing or new ways to find You know, how do we do a store drop-off or return schemes? We've got to really explore and be agile. But while we look at agile things, we also need to invest in things that get us to scale. So there's a balance there. And and I hope that kind of gives a little bit of insight. We need to do the small things because those will get to the big things. But eventually, we also need to put our weight where we can to get things to really scale. Yeah. And I think that what you touched on before around the complexity of the topic is really valid and fair and something that we need to be really transparent about. I think as an industry, it's not unfortunately an easy solution. I'm wondering what else we are exploring within Mars that sort of links back into empowering the consumer and around repurpose. 
So besides external communication and labeling that we're implementing, we are looking at reuse models or bulk dispensing and engaging consumers or even, you know, e-com. What is motivating to consumers? What do they care about? And we've been pretty successful. We've got a pet segment that has a reuse model with Loop today, and we're exploring what that looks like in some of their other brands. Because as a category, pet food is a necessity, right? So how do we make sure we're engaging or having bulk dispensing, which we actually have quite a bit in Europe, but we're trying to expand that capability also. So those are some of the things that we're looking at from a reuse aspect. Yeah, there's a number of fantastic innovation opportunities and technologies coming out in what people are calling the regenerative sustainability area. Yuri, I know that you've studied this, if I'm not mistaken. Could you share with us a little bit of what you're seeing that's quite exciting in that sort of area of upcycling or regeneration? Yeah, so what we increasingly see is that especially the young generations, they feel that companies and governments, they're not doing enough for the moment. And they think that doing less harm is not enough. And even CSR experts like John Elkinton, who actually invented the triple bottom line model, in which he said we have to do better for the planet, better for people and better for our profits. He recently recalled this model because it gave an alibi to companies when their innovations were not better for the profits, not to launch them at all. He wrote a new book called Green Swans, and it's all about how regenerative capitalism will be the way to look at sustainability in the future. And it's exactly what young generations want. They want the ones who are responsible for damaging the planet, so the baby boomer generation X, to repair the planet because they will live on this planet for a much longer time than the older generations. So it's good to see that increasingly companies and brands are moving their attention and shifting it towards protecting and towards improving the planet, whether it's educating farmers on soil protection or designing products and systems for circularity or reusing byproducts to manufacture new products, even using CO2 emissions to create food and drinks or synthetic fuel for airplanes. So this type of innovation will help us all to create a better planet. But of course, it will not be enough. It will take some time. It's still expensive. So I think the main thing about doing less harm and thinking regenerative is about rethinking everything. It's about rethinking our systems, about the way we are living, the way we are building our homes, our communities, the way we're working and commuting, but also the way we are collaborating with our competitors. Because one thing is sure, only Mars cannot solve the climate change. It requires a collaboration with competitors, which is industry-wide or even broader than the industry to solve the problems. Yeah, and I think along that same line, we can be really inspired by what we're seeing in other companies and what's happening, particularly with upcycling. I'm a huge fan of the idea of upcycling. And, you know, it's growing. It's at $47 billion today. And if I think about some of the innovation that I've seen, for example, kazoo tortilla chips that are made from a byproduct of corn manufactured from another line, that they've created this product that essentially uses waste. It's sort of a waste made product. And just five or 10 years ago, that would have sounded really strange and unappealing. But I think today, people would really gravitate towards these kinds of products and be really open about them. Dalila, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. So, you know, if you are seeing some of these products come to market in the food space and they're utilizing waste components, you know, is that off-putting for young people or is that attractive? 
Well, for me, when I see things that are upcycled, I think this is great. You know, like Gen Z, we don't want to create more waste. So we see a benefit to that. Like we always carry a reusable water bottle because we think it's important. Like I don't think a lot of people like using plastic water bottles just because of the waste and if we do it's out of necessity so when I see like certain brands putting in an effort to be sustainable and upcycle products I think this is great you know I'm gonna enjoy this food and I'm gonna help our planet a little bit Dalila, I'll kind of piggyback on that. Similar to you, I am fascinated with some of the reuse and upcycling going on. For me as a mom, the food waste that I observed in my household of five people the course of last year just really shocked me. It wasn't that salient or that visible until last year. But some of the examples that I think are really interesting are in the snacks and dairy space. If you think about barley milk that's made using upcycled grain, one of my favorites is the Hello, I'm Ugly fruit snacks that are made with 100% upcycled fruits. Pulp Pantry, it basically works and partners with manufacturers to sort of leverage overlooked fresh pressed vegetables and turns those into snacks. So to me, as an innovator, there's the saying that like necessity is the mother of all invention and the best innovation comes when you don't have unlimited resources. And so I think in this space in particular, very near and dear to our categories, you know, snacks and so forth, I'm really fascinated by some of the creativity and imagination that I'm seeing. Speaking of imagination and imagining the future, that probably sounds a little bit like science fiction sometimes. I'm going to shift us into thinking about one of my all-time favorite topics. I have to introduce it that way because I think it's so, so exciting and opens us up to huge potentials for our industry, our brands, but also, you know, the world. And that's biotechnology. Biotech, I think, has come such a long way. If we think about molecular food and what we're likely to see in that space. Yes, it's got really strong projections, so there's an estimate that it will be worth over $700 billion within the next four years. And it's growing at a CAGR of 10%. There's fantastic innovation happening, obviously, in things like lab-made meat alternatives, as well as now coming into dairy, synthetic ice cream with Brave Robots. So it's starting to come into our category, and I think that's a really, really exciting space for us. But going back to my point before, we need to be exploring things like this, but this isn't the kind of stuff that's going to be scale within the next five years. We're not going to see this everywhere in the local supermarket. But these are the initiatives that if we're thinking really truly future first, they're really going to be transformational for some of the industries that we operate in. Jess, I know you're a passionate one about this as well. <laughs> I am. I am. And 3D printing is one that I think is really, really interesting. And it's definitely one that is, to your point, probably five to six years out there. But again, a lot of investments being made, a lot of startups emerging in this space. I was reading about Redefine Meat, which is a smaller startup and they basically have announced that they'll be able to achieve high volume plant-based meat printers to the extent that they'll have meat in supermarkets by 2021. So again, meat made from 
3D printing. Yeah, definitely. Super cool innovation. And Yuri, I'm keen to hear if you've, based on your research and all of the expertise that you have in this area, you know, how do you think that that marries up with what people are wanting out of sustainability action? You know, they're obviously driven a lot by wanting to see new solutions here and new innovation, as well as by curiosity. How do you think that they're going to adapt as more of these types of products come to the market? Well, I think it depends a bit on the age of the target group and the consumers we're talking about. And in general, I would say that Generation Z is quite open to innovations and they want to try out new stuff. So they think it's really cool to have 3D printed food. On the other hand, and for older generations, I think another important trend is going back to nature and to naturals, which we could see as maybe challenging the innovations because people want to control the ingredients, they want to understand the ingredients, they want to recognize the ingredients as coming straight from nature. What we see in our research is that there are some barriers. For instance, when we talk about GMO ingredients, we often get very negative reactions. People see it as harmful and unwanted. They don't see the benefits of new technologies like CRISPR to have less diseases, better harvests, and in the end, better for the planet. They think it's unnatural, it's chemical. So I think we would need more education, especially for the older target groups and the older consumers to convince them that it's nothing harmful for their health and it's actually beneficial both for the planet and for themselves. Ultimately, what we need is for these products to be accessible, attainable, affordable. But I think more than anything, we need them to taste good. <laughs> I mean, no one's going to be swapping their meat burger for a lab-made burger unless it tastes really, really good. Yeah, it's been fast-tracked as much as we can, but long-term versus short-term, trying to get all momentum heading in the right direction so we can engage the consumer and start these changes. You feel the pressure even on this call, like we're not doing enough. We've got a lot to do and it's very complex. All the companies are working together and we're all kind of in the same boat, as I heard Yuri say, and we've got a problem to solve, but we are trying to find these solutions. So to leave you with some thoughts and provocations around some of the action that we can enact ourselves, I've brought back my all-time favorite foresight partner in crime, Jess Southard. Jess, what are some of the key takeaways that you had from today's episode? Well, Joe, I'd love to start off because, you know, this is one area that I'm pretty passionate about in terms of how do we empower the everyday person to feel a sense of purpose and pride in their actions. I think like several of the guest speakers shared, it's not enough for us as individuals, but the power and the impact we can all have collectively is where we're really going to start to make progress. And I think a couple things linked to that. One is it has to be super easy and simple. It can't be overly complex. It can't be an extra step. It needs to be convenient. It needs to be accessible and it needs to be easy and affordable. Yeah, everything that we're working on that Anne shared, all of the schemes that we sign up to for reducing the impact of plastic, even the help that we're giving financially to cocoa farmers during COVID-19, there's just so many things that are wonderful. I mean, in Australia, the Mars family is as passionate as we are about saving the Great Barrier Reef. Absolutely, Joe. And I think we often think that some of these things are 10 plus years away. And I think if anything, 2020 has shown that things that we once thought were really, really far away are actually much closer given the pace of change and some of the disruption around us. 
huge thank you to all of our guests today. I hope that you were as inspired by the conversation as Jess and I were and that it makes you think about some of the action that you can instigate. What we're seeing is this real embrace of change by the individual and that's inspiring some of the action that we're seeing companies and governments have. As Dalila said, it's too easy not to do something. This is Joe. This is Jess. Stay curious. Stay curious.